0: Corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad.
1: My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. The wolf of all streets, Mr. Scott Milker. Uh, Scott, I know a lot of people know who you are, but introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved, interested in the cryptocurrency space, and what are you doing now
2: thanks for having me man uh, how did i get involved <clears throat> i guess i'm a glutton for punishment um i've been in crypto since 2016 I, I came in largely as a trader so i had dollars in mind i was literally just uh, there at the perfect time for all of those mythical hundred x unicorn altcoin pumps that we've all heard so much about so very lucky timing when i came in of course then the market eventually uh took a turn for the worse and at that point me, like many others, admittedly, took a very, very deep dive into the actual asset class and the importance of it. And fair to say that at that point, I was orange-pilled. I would say that my conviction only increased through the last, uh, I won't call it a financial crisis, because uh, everything actually went up after the COVID crash. But the nonsense of monetary policy and printing and manipulation that we've obviously seen from the Fed throughout that time, just strengthened my case. And so uh, in that time, you know, I uh, have a, my Twitter account, of course, uh, a free newsletter that I write five days a week, a podcast that comes out three days a week, live streams five days a week. I've got a lot going on. So I basically spend my life 24-7 uh, when when I can uh, talking about, writing about, thinking about the crypto space.
1: I want to focus on the, uh, the term FUD for a minute here. Um, I just retweeted, I shared it in the top of the space. feels like we should do a Twitter space just to discuss the amount of FUD that's sitting all at once. Now, it's yeah, I mean, let's, 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 first of all, um, let's go a little existential for a second. Um, how do we determine what's actually FUD and what's not? Because you can look back, I think, with hindsight and say a lot of things that people would shoot back and say that's FUD ended up having some merit to it.
2: Sure. FUD, FUD obviously stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I don't know if you lost me there for a second fear, uncertainty, and doubt, fund, FUD, F-U-D. Um, the short answer is nobody really knows. But I can say that in my experience in crypto, when we see these massive waves of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, at the same time, it starts to look like uh bear market piling on uh, from the media, from governments, from regulators. We've We've seen a very, very clear uptick For one reason or another in regulatory enforcement action against players in the crypto space, certainly in the United States over the past month, a endless wave of Wells notices, uh, lawsuits, etc. So there's a clear mandate, whether that's a result of all the contagion last year, which is possible and potentially justified, or just uh, this is the perfect timing because of that for them to sort of pile on the industry and take control that's up to individuals to determine. But I will say that right now it is hitting from so many different angles on so many different levels that it bordering on absurd. And a lot of it, and a lot of it, whether you believe it or not, when you dig in, it could end up being true. And we've seen a lot of things end up being true. But the way a lot of these are presented, I'll give the $1.8 billion coin movement from Binance to hedge funds, that was widely reported and started by Forbes. When you actually dig into that story, it's based on sort of loosely interpreted on-chain data, easily explained, whether justifiable or not, by Binance. And it seems like when you read the clickbait headlines and the way that things are presented, that they're making a case rather than presenting facts.
1: Do you, do you think that's um, that's just because of the natural tendency for journalists to try to have some clickbait, get some attention, because now everyone's piling on it? Or is it some other...
2: Top down directive. You can argue as far as the uh, the narrative. Both. So um, I think it's more of the former and less of the latter. I don't. I, I generally, although people have uh, made good cases, I generally try to avoid putting on my tin hat and going too deep down the uh, you know international cabal uh, conspiracy against cryptocurrency central bank digital currency narrative. Although it has some merit, but just looking at it realistically. Uh, let's let's talk about Binance, I guess, as an example, right? Of course. So I just mentioned the one piece of news. The other glaring piece of news with Binance at the moment is the uh, is the SEC's enforcement action against Paxos, who mints BUSD, which is Binance's stablecoin. Paxos, that's not their only stable coin that they mint. And Binance does not mint that coin. Paxos has their own called USDP. Strangely, the SEC did not pursue any sort of enforcement action, didn't even mention the other stable coins that are literally structured, minted, backed in the exact same manner as Binance. I haven't heard the SEC necessarily talking about USDC, which I would argue is the uh, favorite and anointed winner in the stablecoin space by legislators and regulators. So this seems like yet another sort of surreptitious side attack on Binance, a way to take them down a peg because they're a quote unquote offshore exchange. I always find the term offshore exchange funny because it's such a uh, United States centric sort of derogatory term as if we're the only place on earth uh, when crypto is global. But it's very clear that there is some sort of attack happening on Binance one way or another, which is so easily explained by the fact that only one of the two stable coins and others that Paxos is involved in was actually targeted. Now, obviously, I don't know the
1: space anywhere near as well as you do, but uh, is it fair to say that Binance is sort of the the elephant everyone's targeting now? Uh,
2: I think uh, I would say that there are a few elephants. <laughs> Binance, uh, clearly Tether. If you saw today, uh, there was a Wall Street Journal report that just dropped about three hours ago, uh, accusing Tether, which is USDT, for those of you who don't, who don't know, uh, of trying to evade banking regulation, forging documents, using shell com- uh, companies to get banking relationships. And this is years ago, um, uh, to be able to be banked and to be able to back the asset. Because, of course, if you're going to be a centralized stablecoin, you, in theory, need to be fully backed one for one by dollars um, and uh, you know uh, government uh to, Tre- treasuries, basically liquid uh, dollar equivalents. Now, in the case of both Binance and Tether, one could make the argument that they started as shadier enterprises and just by sheer size and time and existence, they've found a way to become legit. Uh, interestingly, CZ from Binance made a really interesting argument a few months ago when talking about the pursuit of regulation. Uh, Which, by the way, if you're a crypto exchange, you have to deal with every single regulator in every country. And when you enter the United States, you have to deal with every single state within the United States. So getting regulated is a near impossibility, especially when there's not much clarity on how to do it. But he made a really interesting corollary to the invention of the automobile. Right. He said when the automobile was first invented, they were slow. Not many people had them. There were obviously no laws. A couple people driving down back roads, uh, dodging horses and buggies. Well, as they got more popular and became faster, well, that's when you started to see regulation around cars, right speed limits, uh stop signs, uh rules of the road, seat belts, safety precautions because the regulation had to catch up with the popularity of the car I and mean, he likened binance to that. When they started in you know, the mid-210s, two, two there was no kind of regulation. But does that mean that a crypto exchange should not exist or attempt to operate because the regulation doesn't exist? No. His argument is that they've attempted to become compliant jurisdiction by jurisdiction as the regulation has become cleared. I think that, whether you believe it or not, is a major challenge, obviously, for someone of their size. So I do believe that at this point, Binance is trying very hard to become a regulated entity. I was on a basis actually earlier with CZ today. And he effectively said, listen, my job now, he's like, I don't run an exchange anymore. I don't get to talk about these assets. He's like, my job is to talk to regulators. And, and I've seen him in person. His other job is to take selfies and smile. Right. And be a politician and a PR agent. So Tether may be, uh, very similar. There was a lot of, uh, stories about tether in the earlier days and not even until the last uh, you know 18 months 24 months about how tether was backed a lot of stories about uh, difficult audits and inability to get a big 4 firm to audit them but at this point i mean i it was cumberland or somebody but they just recently released basically a report that said tether was fully backed by short term treasuries and dollars in federally regulated banks etc And so now, of course, we start to see the FUD stories from the Wall Wall Street Journal saying that uh, Tether did these things in the past. Even if they did, my assumption is that you'll see some sort of slap on the wrist or fine, which has been the uh, par for the course, and and we'll move on. But there are some very large players that the United States government is very unhappy with. Uh, It's my opinion from looking at all this that, as I sort of hinted at before, USDC from Circle, which obviously has a relationship with Coinbase, had a close relationship with regulators uh, might be the pre- anointed winner in the stablecoin space. Could even eventually, frankly, become the de facto central bank digital currency for the United States. But that you know, anyone who's a competitor to Circle probably is going to see some attacks from regulators. Why would and this is just again part of my own naivete
1: here, but why wouldn't traders, investors hold off and let the dust settle if there's a lot of interest in the cryptocurrency space still and people are attracted to these prices, why not just wait a few months and see how it shakes out? Why is there sort of a a still a desire to kind of hop in
2: despite the the turbulence? Well, the dust might not settle or the dust might not settle for years, right? I think that in our echo chamber with our level of self-importance, we assume that we are top of the docket for legislators and regulators. But I would almost take the bet, the flip side, which is that we continue to see Gary Gensler in the SEC using the few tools that they have since he's very openly stated he believes he has the mandate and all the tools he needs to regulate this industry and that we don't need anything further. Sort of goes back to the old uh, adage, you know, if if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything you see looks like a nail. Um, And so I I think that he believes that he has the mandate to fully regulate this industry and he's going to do that through enforcement. And, you know, just last summer, so now it's been seven or eight months, we saw the Lummis-Gillibrand bill, put forward. There was all kinds of hype and excitement around that. You haven't heard a word about it since, right? For anyone who's uh, not familiar, it had some pragmatic and pretty actually realistic and rational ways for legislation on stable coins and crypto as a whole and uh, tax some tax uh, some tax relief for people who do small transactions with crypto so that they're not selling their Bitcoin every time they want to buy a cup of coffee. Really just intelligent, well-considered, and that's coming from someone who's not a huge fan of our government. Bipartisan, of course, Lummis being a Republican from Wyoming and Gillibrand being a Democrat from New York, right? Um, And you haven't heard anything about it. So it kind of goes back to what I just said about CZ and Binance. You can wait for the dust to settle, but the dust may not ever settle if they continue to fight, right? And if you've been in this asset class for a long time, this isn't unfamiliar. It's just an uptick in the same rhetoric. You know, I, I've had Mark Yusko go on the show quite a few times and he loves to give the you know, first they laugh at you. Then they uh, fight you. Then you win that, you know, the that old adage as well. Well, we're definitely in the then they fight you face. Right. Uh, and they're they're fighting extremely hard. Um, and even more importantly, I think once again, the question you asked is, I, I think, a very U.S. centric question. There are plenty of places on planet Earth that are not the United States where people can very comfortably invest in these assets. The bulk of investment in the cryptocurrency space is not in the United States and is in places where people are far less concerned. So basically what you end up with is the United States lagging behind in the new technological advancement, which is something the United States historically has always let on, not lagged on, to uh, use your own uh, title, I guess.
1: Do you get a sense that a lot of the leverage has come out, um, or is there still sort of a, uh, a good amount of margin across the space?
2: I think there's always a good amount of margin across the space, but I would say that the bulk of it was rinsed uh, through all of the contagion of last year. That said, humans are going to human, right? So we're going to see that completely, uh, completely repeated. The leverage will build once again, but even today, right? Uh, so last night we had a $1,200-ish, $1,300 drop in Bitcoin in less than 30 minutes. So a 5% move uh, across the asset class, since obviously coins trade with sort of higher beta, maybe 7, 8, 9, even 10% moves on altcoins in that same 30 minutes. That was $60 million in leverage long liquidated for basically that move. That was the biggest since August. If you go back before that, we used to see literally days and moves like that where you'd see six, seven, eight hundred million liquidated. Sixty million in this space is absolutely nothing. And we're talking about that like it was a huge liquidation event. So I think certainly from retail, the leverage is largely gone. And I think the institutions that were heavily leveraged have been rinsed. Right. I mean, 3O's capital was arguably one of the biggest. They were absolutely destroyed using leverage. Uh, I mean, FTX was a Ponzi scheme leveraged to the hilt uh, anyone who was ha- was a fund and was leveraged and had their coins on FTX they got destroyed anyone who was long the entire time and suffered the contagion they got rinsed so I do think that most of it is gone for now but I do believe it's all coming back one way or another
1: talk us through uh silvergate which I'm seeing at the periphery you know and obviously it's been a big story but First of all, just for the audience and for those who are not familiar,
2: what is Silvergate and what's going on in the last several days here? Well, Silvergate is, a, is an actual bank, <laughs> uh, and they were one of the first, if not the first, in the United States to service the crypto industry, right? And there's been sort of a lot of stories now, even in 2023, talking about Operation Choke Point 2.0 that cutting the banking system off from the crypto industry would be the best way to kneecap the industry, which is obviously true. It's great uh, that you can trade crypto, but if you can't get your money out into a bank, if you can't convert your Bitcoin into fiat, that's basically the easiest way to end the industry. Well, Silvergate was the first bank effectively to bank, you know, Coinbase, Paxo, Circle, all of these companies, Gemini, that, that we talk about. And Every single one of them abandoned Silvergate within the last 48 hours, which to me is, I mean, I get it. It's a business decision, but extremely, extremely sad. But uh, they themselves, you know, had massive loans out to a lot of players in the industry. They were FTX's uh, main bank. And so basically, there's just a huge sort of, once again, seemingly a bank run on Silvergate Bank, something that we saw in crypto, but not in an actual financial institution, if that's what you want to call them. Um, and people running for the hills and abandoning it. And also, you know, they've failed to really be able to report uh, on their accounting and need some more help. They have some the Department of Justice looking into them. They have regulators looking into them. It's basically an epic shit show, uh, and everybody's abandoning them. So this is one of the few banks that really has confidently and excitedly banked the crypto industry for all these years. So it's a relatively big deal.
1: Yeah, I got to imagine that's going to make a lot of other banks not want to go down that road, given kind of this example of
2: being made of Silvergate. Yeah, I I think so. Although it seems that everybody just pivoted to Signature, which is sort of a very similar business model. And there are some people who are not uh, quite – I don't have much knowledge of it, but who spoke – pretty uh, aggressively against Silvergate's business practices, uh, business practices and leadership. So there were a lot of people who maybe saw red flags or just didn't like the approach that Silvergate took. But, but yes, I mean, I think that uh, 2022 in general, and Silvergate is yet just another victim, I think, of all of that contagion or player in it, uh, is going to give major pause to a lot of uh, the bigger banks. But that said on one side right as much as we hear the jamie diamonds of the world talk about how you know bitcoin is a ponzi scheme and going to zero every single day we hear more news from goldman jp morgan morgan stanley certainly from the fidelity fidelity who's been deeply entrenched in crypto for a long time all actually adopting the technology moving to allow their wealthier clients Uh, access to the asset class, the ability to trade and invest. So it's sort of a watch what they say, not what they do situation. I mean, you may recall that only a few years ago, it's this regime change, uh, I guess, really under Biden, although I don't really give him uh, credit or blame for it necessarily. To Gary Gensler and to other leadership at, at regulators stopped a lot of actually really positive momentum that we had. When Jay Clayton was at the SEC, I think he took a very reasoned approach to crypto. Brian Brooks, I believe, when he was the head of the OCC, wrote a number of letters. I mean, they allowed banks to explore stablecoins as an alternative to SWIFT and ACH, which is something actually in Japan today. There was an announcement that three banks, three of the major banks in Japan have gotten together and are testing stablecoins for uh, payments just in the same way that we discussed that here. I mean, SWIFT is like... Is just under a hundred year old system, right? Seventy year old system or something. Anyone who sent a wire knows that sending a stablecoin in thirty seconds uh, is a lot better and arguably a lot cheaper. Um, so these things are still moving forward and happening. Clayton also said that uh, you know the state streets of the world and the BNY Mellon's who are actively looking at this could custody crypto assets for people. So I, I don't think that uh, this is going to be that big of a deal for other banks. But I, listen, if you're on the fringe or you're on the margin and you were considering it as a smaller bank, uh, you might, uh, might not do it anymore, at least for now. That's, the, that, that, that's where we might need to wait to see the dust settle for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I have to. Well, all this sounds actually, I can argue, um, positive in the sense that this is how you get a forced decoupling against equities. Right? Now, granted, it's the wrong way. Right for now, right? But if you take the the institutionalism out of the cryptocurrency space, then conceivably you take some of the co movement out to other risk assets.
2: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash Live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, we, we, we got what we wished for to some degree, right? Everybody talked about institutional adoption, wanting Wall Street here. Uh, There's a long history of those being negative top events for the crypto space, right? Uh, CBOE or CME Futures, now I'm blanking on which one, was uh, approved and started trading on December 18th, 2017. Not coincidentally, the dead of the deadest tops of the 2017 bull run for Bitcoin when it hit $20,000 to the day. The Bitcoin Futures ETF approval, you know. Uh, also the dead top of that entire market cycle. You know, these are products that were offered to institutions who hated the asset class and could short it, right? So, yes, I think to some degree we got what we wished for, and if institutions are less interested, then perhaps uh, your argument holds water. But I think, honestly, I think a lot of institutions uh, have been entering the space quietly. I mean, I gave you a list of all the J.P. Morgan Goldmans, all those, obviously, Fidelity Increasing, Their activity. Uh, I just think that uh, this is a quiet period, but I think that's true across all markets. Now, for the decoupling, that's happened, right? Historically, obviously, Bitcoin has been largely an uncorrelated asset from other markets. I mean, if you look at it on a 10 year period, correlation is like 0.15. It's extremely low, obviously, almost no correlation. I think it's zero effectively to bonds and even zooming in which is not the way to look at correlation but over a 40-day period the highest it ever was was may of 2021 at 0.8 and it's now hit a low since then of 0.3 so becoming largely uncorrelated and you can see that even anecdotally staring at the market if you look at the chart you know in june everything sort of bottomed bitcoin was just boring for the entire summer while sort of stocks and, and bonds bounced all over the place and then as you pointed out We saw a major black swan event in the crypto space, which was FTX, and a clear (laughs) decoupling to the downside, right? Of course, we had a major crash. Nothing was really happening in the stock market. And since then, it only took two months for that entire crash to be retraced, which to me was a really sort of bullish and interesting signal from the crypto space that, you know, by January, price had rocketed right back up to where it was before the entire FTX collapse, which at the time seemed like the end of the world and the end of crypto to a lot of people, and now we've been chopping around still above those levels for all this time with that majorly decreased correlation. I, I mean, today is one of the most interesting days you can look at if you're a short-term correlation maxi, right? I mean, we have Bitcoin down 5-ish 5 five-ish percent, stocks up pretty big, and GBTC, which is supposed to effectively track BTC, is up. <laughs> it's an equity. So the markets are all over the place and clearly not much correlation. What about within the space? So
1: you know, it seems like whenever I look at the cryptocurrency tab on the Investing. dot com app, and people may of me like using that, but whatever's the easiest one on my phone here, um, it seems like they all either go green or they all go red. What what's needed to break the the, the sort of intercorrelation within the space?
2: You know that that's a really interesting question, in and it's sort of the uh, holy grail question because. We all know that in any sort of liquidation event or or negative news cycle, all correlations in all markets basically go to one, right? Everything becomes correlated. Well, that's extremely and more readily clear in the crypto space if you consider it its own ecosphere and the assets being, you know, individual things that you can invest in. So when you see Bitcoin drop, Like I said, if it goes down 5%, usually you get a 10% drop in in altcoins or or even worse, right? And the lower cap, the more they move uh, relative to Bitcoin. Now, sometimes on the way up, altcoins at least versus Bitcoin stay relatively flat. In a bull market, the way that people generally trade this market, and that's because there was not that much new capital coming in is when Bitcoin is in a generally safe spot moving up but trading sideways, that's when you see the decorrelation and coins kind of go absolutely nuts. Uh, and that can happen within certain sectors, right? We saw DeFi summer, NFT summer, metaverse fall. We just saw this sort of uh, mini bubble in AI-related coins. But to me, those are all kind of stupid narratives. The reality is that Bitcoin remains king. I think that uh, Ethereum to me is the uh, more interesting asset actually for trading and s- certainly for swing trading or for the next few years of investment and i'm not saying that as uh i think bitcoin is a more important asset if uh shit really blows up so to speak right i mean people hold bitcoin just in case we go full mad max uh which i don't necessarily think is going to happen but it's nice to have some of your money in something that could uh behave as a hedge against that happening but ethereum i think uh for me has you know, much bigger swings. It's sort of a trader's dream and a lot more upside moving into the future. So, I do think that uh, there are a lot of moments when the market is either in a bull run or safe where they decorrelate massively. But when you're in a bear market, you kind of get that same familiar pattern of more pain in all coins on the way down. Let's talk about the trading side for a bit here. Um, how do you trade through this?
1: Uh, you know, there's always this line that traders love volatility. I always, Kind of have an issue with that because you know you can get whipsawed like hell, right? With volatility. But what are some of the uh, indicators or things that you uh, use to help you determine entry and exit points?
2: To to be totally frank, uh, I sort of agree with you and have stepped back and have not been trading particularly aggressively. You know, I uh, filled all my sort of longer swing bids on the way down, uh, and now I'm just waiting. Right? I mean, you know, I bought Bitcoin twenty one down to sixteen. And those were standing bids for months. Uh, And Ethereum, you know, twelve fifty-ish caught a little bit below that. And obviously, that's to add to massive positions that I've, for me, that I've never uh, really touched. Um, But it's a very, very, very difficult market to trade right now. I think all markets are relatively difficult to trade to be to be quite honest at this point. Um, But for me, when I'm looking for those swing positions, listen, I've in my uh, years of trading. As, and, you know, basing it on technical analysis, which I'm the first to admit, uh, jokingly, is uh, sort of astrology for men, right? I, I don't think it's a science necessarily. And for women, I don't want to be sexist. But, you know, you can look at a chart and determine a strategy. And it, even if it's uh, unicorn dust and tea leaves, it gives you an actionable way to decide where your idea is invalidated and how large your position size should be, Right. So you you determine where you want your entry to be and whatever strategy you utilize, uh, support, resistance, Ichimoku crowd, uh, RSI, whatever you use that helps you determine your stop loss at which point you then determine how much of your portfolio you're willing to lose if you hit that stop loss. And then you should go about your day and and, uh, ignore the chart until you either stop out or hit whatever area you are looking to take profit. For me, after trying basically everything over time, I think you come to understand that less is more really price action and volume rule. Uh, For me, I do utilize RSI, but only to give me signals of when you might get a good bounce in either direction, right? If you're massively overbought or massively oversold and you see some sort of divergence with price, bullish or bearish divergence, that's when I'm more inclined to take a sizable position. At this point, I just feel like bigger positions on less assets with a longer sort of time horizon is the way that I'm much more comfortable with. I've tried the uh, daily scalping with leverage thing, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have the, uh, the calm and, and mentality to do that long term, and, and I don't really think that 99% of people should.
3: We'll be back after a quick break. Did you get a
1: sense
2: that the low might be in, or do you think we're still going to break? I think uh, I, I think the low is absolutely in, unless <laughs> you know the unknown unknowns strike. Because I would have told you in June that the low was absolutely in, and I think it was, if not for FTX, right? So I, you know, I can uh, only assign probabilities or the idea. But listen, we're sitting at twenty-two to twenty-three thousand-ish. Pretty big drop to get below sixteen thousand. I don't know who has that much Bitcoin left to sell. Right, I mean, even when you looked at FTX, people thought it was going to be this major event for Bitcoin. It was going to drop so massively. Well, it dropped less than sort of other black swan events before. And if you took a look at the balance sheet of FTX, there was no Bitcoin left. Right, I mean, Bitcoin is the asset that trades twenty four seven. It's liquid, three twenty four seven, three sixty five. When people needed to sell shit during all of this, not just crypto collapse, but during all of this bear market and stocks and everything. When you're panicked and need money on a Saturday, you can't dump your Tesla, right? But you can sell your Bitcoin. And I think that we've had almost everyone who intended to sell or had something to sell and needed liquidity, they've basically sold their Bitcoin. For me, I can't find mentally, unless the Mount. okay, there's Mt. Gox creditors, so maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand Bitcoin come online. I think that's dubious at best. Listen, I don't think there's any chance of this almost, but if for some reason Grayscale collapsed and they had to sell off the entire you know, Grayscale Bitcoin trust and liquidate that, that's 4 or 5% or 6% at this point of Bitcoin supply. It would take something like that for there to be enough Bitcoin to put in a new low unless all markets are just – you know, unless we're entering the Great Reset and a huge massive Great Depression and we see a major grind down for months and, and years – I I would be pretty surprised if the bottom wasn't in. Yeah, unless you have like credit event,
1: in which case everything will correlate.
2: I, I would assume you've run Bitcoin space. All
1: right, so let's talk about um, other investments that you yourself look at. So you know, presumably you're doing more than just cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Um, are you are you trading around stocks? You're looking at bonds and saying to yourself this is kind of interesting here. Or what what are you what are you doing? I bought a shit ton of bonds. man.
2: <laughs> yeah, let's talk. About it. <laughs> and and uh, it's, uh, it's hard for me to say because I, uh, you know, I've been I've been one of those rail against bonds. People well, first, what, 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 what kind time. of bonds are we
1: talking? Treasuries, talking AAA junk.
2: Treasury two year, you know, like uh, you know, four to five percent short term Treasuries. Uh, you know, uh, not, nothing crazy. Um. And uh, I mean, listen, I, yes, I know that I'm not beating inflation, but there's a certain time, I think, in the market where you, you have to uh, admit that you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. I mean, it's kind of the hedge fund mentality for a retail investor, right? I'm going to lose less while things are bad. Um, and I think it's really hard to, hard to argue with 4 to 5% yield in this environment, uh, when it's very hard to know what's likely to come next, in my opinion, I mean, do you, I'm assuming you agree? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I put on that that
1: tweet. Uh, yes, I don't even know what date it is anymore, just given this this stomach bug I've got. But you know, it's like uh, you always get the questions like, why would anybody even bother with the stock market when you get a guaranteed, you know, four point nine five percent yield? And, and my response is, people are degenerate gamblers. Right? They want to, They they love that zero DTE, fast money. So I'm in agreement with you. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I keep going back to I, – I, I, it's beyond my understanding how people still don't understand there are lags between interest rate movement and when it affects the economy. So everyone keeps talking about you know, uh, why bother putting 5 percent – getting a 5 percent rate of return in uh, two-year uh, treasuries? Uh, well, because it could very well be the Fed already over-tightened, and inflation could come down quite a bit next year. That's not a very popular thought, but – that's my exact yeah. Point. That's, that's, that's my point, and and it's it's not a popular thought because people are confusing rate
2: today with inflation tomorrow. Uh, right. The, the Fed effectively has a hundred percent hit rate on overcompensating in both directions. Right. I love when uh, people defend Jerome Powell. Powell now say he's done a great job. He's brought inflation down from nine to six percent. Well, why the fuck was inflation nine percent in the first place? Right. So it's like, uh, yes, if you can uh, create a disaster and then be the one to fix it, I guess that could make you be a hero to some degree. But I just don't see it that way. Um, but the Fed is always wrong, and they're always wrong aggressively, it, you know, historically. So they obviously overshot on the upside. All they, if, if they really wanted to tame inflation in the first place, to your point, because there's such a major lag, they should have reined in QE six months to a year earlier, if not more right? Um, And so I think we all know, I I would argue that they've already overshot because inflation has come down massively. I don't think inflation is necessarily over. I think that inflation will be one of those things that we just slowly see uh, higher lows in inflation. 2% becomes it's okay to be 2.5%, becomes it's okay to be 3% because the reality is that uh, easy money While it may be over for a while, that's the only way that this uh, Ponzi scheme works (laughs) moving forward right and forever. So yes, I think that uh, locking in 5% right now, if inflation could be well below 5% in the coming year or two, is a really good move. And if you think stocks are going to go down, locking in 5% and losing less is the appropriate mentality at this moment. You can't always be hitting a home run every single year. Right? I mean, if you zoom out and accept that, hey, I'll lose 1% or 2% versus inflation my cash buying power this year, but I'm going to actually grow the size of my portfolio by simply sitting in bonds and doing, doing nothing. I think I lost in the last bit there, but but I will say real quick, I think, I think um,
1: <laughs> it, it it is just – I don't know. I, I can't understand the way people think when it comes to taking a guaranteed rate of return versus a chance on uh, a potential loss. Right, they'll they'll still want to take the gamble on stocks, um, but yeah, that's the nature of the beast. Now, th- the thing is, like even even today, um, this has been a pretty strong week, right? I mean, I think a lot of people were surprised by the way stocks acted this week, including Treasuries. The long end of the curve actually agrees that uh, you're probably going to have a recession or disinflation. Um, you know, long duration Treasuries haven't broken you know in a meaningful way their price, even though the two year yield keeps pushing higher. So it is intriguing to me. Now, the the thing that kind of makes me nervous is I keep going back to it. there's a lot of debt that's going to be rolled over next year, presumably into higher rates. That's where the credit event risk is. It's not there just yet. That's why I said which bonds, right? I suspect that junk debt is going to have a real hard time at some point this year, but again, not yet. Um, what are some of the things you'd be looking at for um, wanting to take on more risk into equities beyond just the idea that they go down? Would there be a set of conditions that you'd look at to say, okay, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done that bond trade. Maybe the time actually to go into
2: stocks is here. I, I mean, I don't think that I will regret the bond trade, right? I still have a stock portfolio and will benefit from any upside that comes with that. So I don't necessarily see that as a major risk, but um, can you hear me, by the way? I'm just, yeah, you're good. Listen, so it's interesting because... I have to believe that Bitcoin's going to correlate for me to say that the bottom is in for Bitcoin and maybe potentially would not be in for stocks. So take that uh, as an understanding. I do think that that's possible. But if you look historically at the certainly the last few collapses when we've had the yield curve inversion sort of precedes the recession, right? So you get the yield curve reversion inversion, which is way more inverted than it has been in those past situations, even in the Great Recession and such then you get the mythical fed pivot that everyone seems to be so excited for right the fed stops tightening obviously and pivots maybe even to more qe or or, or lowering rates i don't think that's going to happen i think they just pause but a pause can be a pivot i guess in this context every single time it goes yield curve inversion fed pivot then market bottom right So maybe this time is different. They're very dangerous words uh, because we've already seen such a sizable drop. But, you know, we're we're talking about a classic sort of real bear market into a recession. You might see instead of this sort of 15, 20% drop in equities, you might see a 40% drop in equities, right? That wouldn't be crazy. So either we revisit those lows or those lower, but you have a lot of historical precedence to say, yield curve inverts, then the Fed pivots, and that's not when markets go back up. Right then, the bottom comes in months later, and then things start to rise. So I think uh, right now, extreme patience uh, and just sitting and taking what you can get is probably the right move, at least for me. So you like that?
1: <clears throat> like that tweet I put out about uh, they're going to invert the ever living shit out of, out of the Yoker even. Yeah, uh,
2: that, that 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 thing's not going. Yeah, we're. Turning Japanese, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, whatever.
1: Yeah, but, but, let, but let's talk about that a little bit because I, you know, so there's the automatic assumption that you know that means we're going to hit a recession. I keep going back to, yes, most recessions tend to be preceded by inverted yield curves, but not every single yield, inverted yield curve means a recession. Um, it's like I don't know how much more damage you need to have to, to destroy housing f- from what we've seen. <laughs> I mean, so what? Okay, mortgage rates are seven percent. What you just go to ten percent to stop all housing construction activity?
2: I mean, you can't do that. For yeah, that. but I mean, in the nineteen. In the 1980s my parents bought a house with a I think a fourteen percent interest rate right so it's like that thats sort of the thing is like you get these lower highs because they can only press so far but six and seven percent interest rates historically are somewhat more average than thought right um it's not so strange it's just when you've been in effectively a negative interest rate environment for so long it seems absolutely insane but I agree I don't think it's going to go that much higher and well, I think what's even more sort of anecdotally interesting, I mean, where I live, I live in Florida, of course, and everybody's moving here, but we we haven't seen prices drop at all. What we've seen is nothing happening. Well, that, that's why it's not right? dropping. I mean, there's <laughs> no comps being set. Yeah. Because uh, because if you have a uh, 3% mortgage, you're not selling your house to go buy one with a 7% mortgage. And if you're a buyer, you're just kind of waiting, right? Um I see Dave Weisberger in the audience, and I think we talked about that literally on Monday uh, on our Macro Monday show that we, that we do together. So, uh, like, we haven't really seen this major real estate collapse. We haven't seen a collapse uh, necessarily in the job market. And I'll be honest, man, you see things like Goldman Sachs pricing at a 100% chance of a recession, and everybody's so sure. When has everybody ever been right?
3: i'm not gonna
2: I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not saying there's a recession coming but i'm just saying if you have any sort of counter indication it's when everybody is
1: sure that one thing is gonna right. just like everyone is still sure that stocks are gonna go down immediately and that's why all these anonymous like, bear accounts keep getting retweets and engagements it's like it's not the not as worse I... um okay so so scott going going back to you um okay so you got the bond side you're kind of waiting on the cryptocurrency, not doing too much on the trading side. Uh, what is he doing <laughs> during the day? It sounds like you know your, your investment side is kind of
2: set for now. So how are you keeping yourself busy? Uh, all the things I mentioned at the beginning. <laughs> um, really creating content, uh, research, uh, endless seemingly meetings, meeting new people, hosting things, uh, guesting on things. Honestly, as safe as, uh, as, as it sounds, basically just talking about, writing about, and thinking about this space can take up quite a bit of time, um, and so that's really where the focus is. You know, a lot of research, a lot of deep dives, a lot of trying to figure out what the hell is going on, right? Because I think uh, if you choose to speak openly about what's happening in this space, uh, you have a responsibility to be as well informed as possible, which is extremely difficult uh, when the news cycle is so fast and furious, and generally opinion and not fact. But that's what it is. So, as much as I might not be deploying uh, daily, I'm preparing myself to do so when the moment is right. And I think that that takes a lot of uh, research on a daily basis.
1: By the way, I will say for those in the audience, um, unless you're day trading, that's the way investing should be. (laughs) It's not like you should be constantly looking at what's going on second by second. Um, Yeah, there's more productive things you can do in your time. Listen, in my case, I mean, I'm focused on building. Like you, a brand, an audience, you know, on the media side, because you know, uh, what else am I going to do during the day? Yeah, right. You know, that's kind of taken care of, right? So it's just being out there as much as possible, trying to provide some guidance and suggestions and ideas. Uh, but for the most part, what else are you going to do other than sometimes just wait for the uh, for the fat pitch to come your way? I just spend my time
2: listening to Dave. <laughs> 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 I, I, my my, my, uh, I, I you know, I always joke the old me you know if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room well i can tell you that i'm always in the right room <laughs> because i'm never the smartest person there and uh, i like to keep it that way And that's how i keep myself informed you know like uh between all those things i i do like i also have to record you know i generally record five six seven podcasts long form a week so you know it's uh Four to seven AM every day. I'm writing my newsletter. You know, then I'm with my kids. But then it's you know an hour, hour and a half of prep for a YouTube stream. Hour YouTube stream, twenty minute break, record a podcast, and by then it's already noon or one o'clock, and I haven't even looked really at the market you know since the morning. So, yeah, it's very busy. Yeah, no, it, it's a grind. I don't know if people realize how
1: um, one how difficult it is to get a following, especially on like YouTube. And <laughs> you've done a great job on that. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of work. I mean, I think people. Take it for granted when they just see some nicely polished video and content, not realizing how many hours it can go into even just
2: the editing of it. It it really is a lot. Luckily, I have a small but uh, extremely hardworking and talented team that uh, helps with all those things, obviously, helps with research and prep and gathering everything. But um, yeah, I mean, I I spend a lot of time, a lot of time in front of the camera, uh, you know, producing this stuff. For
1: those that want to uh, be in your circle of influence, let's call it, how do they uh, find you? How do they sign up to your stuff?
2: The easiest place to find me is on uh, Twitter, unless, of course, I'm mysteriously shadow banned like everybody else in crypto, apparently. Uh, uh, Scott Melker, S-C-O-T-T-M-E-L-K-E-R on Twitter and everything else links links from there. Uh, I have... uh, the Wolfden Den newsletter, which comes out five days a week, completely free. Uh, and then obviously my YouTube channel also under the name Scott Melker. And, you know, you can find the podcast quite literally, uh, you know, on, on, on any platform. And actually, uh, interestingly, I haven't even talked about this, but next Monday I'm launching a second newsletter, uh, which is completely AI and data driven, no uh, human interaction at all a- alongside the tie. I don't know if you're familiar with the tie, but they're kind of like a Bloomberg for, for uh, crypto. So, you know, they have a terminal dashboard uh, and it's institutional only. It's never really been available for retail. I'm lucky enough uh, that they let me use it, but uh, I'm also dumb and I'm also smart enough, I should say, or dumb enough, you can say, that I only understand about five to 10% of what's available there. And so I think I am a pretty good reflection of uh, retail. And so we've basically just gotten together to launch this thing. It's called the Daily Close. It'll come out at 7 p.m. basically every day starting Monday into perpetuity. And includes basically a screener of everything that happened in the market, top trending news, all, like I said, AI and data driven. I won't even touch it on a daily basis. And then all of their sort of like custom lead indicators and summary of the data of the day, you know, outlying coins, how the top 25 performed, uh, trending NFT projects, basically everything. So I've been working my ass off on that. And how to launch next week. Everyone, check that
1: out. Thank you, everybody for joining. Thank you, Scott. I am going to take some Pepto Bismol because <laughs> how bad my stomach God, God,
2: yeah, i am getting worse in the world than food poisoning. Ugh, God. Yeah,
1: no. And everyone, check out my app, How You Dish, which is for connecting foodies to each other. So, with that said, thank you, Scott. <laughs> thank thank you, so you so much. Your...
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.